This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. From the wonder of the new Camp to the Wanderers of Wickham, April 2001 saw Liverpool in both FA Cup semi-final and UEFA Cup semi-final action, as well as heading to Goodison Park to play out one of the greatest Merseyside derbies in Premier League history. I'm Guy Clark. Welcome along to the latest instalment of Julio's treble winners here on the Blood Red channel as we reminisce on the Reds' magical treble winning season 20 years on. Alongside me, as ever, Dan Kay. Dan, how are we keeping? Pretty good, thanks, Guy. How's yourself? Yeah, not so bad. And uh, I can see the smile on your face. Our listeners can't. But getting ready to talk all about April 2001, I'll sort of say it now, maybe one of the greatest months to be a Liverpool fan until recent years. Without question. It was an incredibly exciting time. As for a lot of Liverpoolians, it was a very exciting time for me as a Liverpoolian, getting back into the game, about to finish university that year. And it's a very well, you know, being able to kind of delve into this is a very welcome distraction from April 2021, which, we have to be honest, has not been a particularly memorable or enjoyable time uh, to be a Liverpool supporter. But as the famous old 1970s sitcom, The Likely Lads, the theme tune used to say, "What the only thing to look forward to is the past. I'm not sure that's quite true, but certainly for the next half hour or so, we'll very much look, and look forward in, in getting back into Gerard Hulet's treble winners from, from two decades ago. Well, we didn't know they were going to become treble winners, but we were starting to get the hunch that it was a possibility. And as this month of April wore on, it uh, it really started to gain legs. As you say, I suppose 20 years on, it, it feels maybe even further away due to sort of the pandemic with, as you say, the way in which this season unravelled and, uh, well, not unravelled, all came together and how actually the, the current season is the one that is unravelling. But the month started, as we often do, we'll go through it sort of chronologically. The month started away in Barcelona, the UEFA Cup semi-final against the Catalan club. A, a goalless draw out there, but I know that it's, a, it's a game that is very, very sort of fondly regarded by yourself. Very much so, Guy. I mean, it was my first ever European away match with Liverpool. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd probably only been to maybe half a dozen European home games in that time, but um, after after the after the, the quarter final win over Porto, my mate Jimmy said, "You fancy going on the day trip?" Um, you know, neither of us had season tickets, neither of us knew how we get it, how we get a ticket for the match, but we managed to. And I wouldn't recommend this, kids. Um, we we managed to find an online ticketing agency, and obviously this is online twenty years ago, and we both paid best part of hundred pound each for for a ticket for the match. Obviously, it's a bit of a leap of faith. We didn't know, you know, would they be legitimate? We, you know, when we when would we get in with them? Um, we had to pick them up from an Irish bar in Barcelona on the day of the game called Scobie's Irish Bar. The the comedian behind the bar, of course, did the time honoured tradition of when we turned up saying we're here for our tickets. Going, what tickets? And and and, and he kept up that charade for a couple of minutes, but we, we got ourselves sorted out. Had a tremendous had a tremendous afternoon. Um, with the it must have been at least four or five thousand Liverpool supporters out there in a, a little bar called Cafe Zurich, which is just off La Ramba, quite near the Sagrada Familia Cathedral. Um, had a few, you know, a few bevies in the sunshine, which bearing in mind we've been up since about four o'clock in the morning to get a six o'clock flight from, from Speak Airport, whatever time it was. We headed up to the ground and, and my mate, for some reason, decided, and he's never done anything like this before since he's not this kind of lad, he decided to try and see if he could. He could if he could blag us into the away end. And he, I don't know why he put on some kind of really kind of slightly bizarre French accent, which didn't work. And at one point I thought he was going to get us arrested. 
and the tickets taken off us, but thankfully it didn't. It was only when we got to the ground, we actually realised our tickets were in separate parts of the ground. He was behind the goal with the ultras, and I was very fortunate on the side, reasonably high up, very close to one of the, there were actually four little pockets of, of, of the Liverpool sections, and I was right close to one of them, managed to kind of hop in there, and ended up being very close to Kenny Dalglish, who came in just shortly before kickoff, and he, I got him to sign my, my match ticket. In terms of the actual football match, um, it was one of the most deathly dull nil-nil draws you will ever see in your life. But that didn't matter a jot because it was, you know, first leg semi-final. This was a young team. You know, this was only Hume's second second full season in charge. Uh, I remember Barcelona were quite came out with a few comments afterwards about it was a Liverpool betrayed football with their tactics and whatever. But you know, what we did, what do they expect us to do? Play wide open and get beaten five nil. Yeah, it's and one it of those, set... isn't it, in the sort of modern era gets dubbed a tactical masterclass. As you were sort of saying there, I yeah. mean, you you look at some of the names within the Barcelona squad, and albeit Barcelona weren't maybe quite the, the force that they then became sort of five years or so later on, but they had the likes of Frank de Boer in the side, Rivaldo and Cliver up front. Koku was in the midfield over Mars and Pep Guardiola too with Luis Enrique mm-hmm. there as well. I mean... As I say, they, they probably weren't quite the juggernaut they went on to become, but some absolutely huge names of the of the era in that squad. It, this was still Barcelona. I mean, I think that they only they only ended up qualifying for the Champions League on the final day of that season when Rivaldo yeah. scored a, an amazing overhead kick to get a uh, possibly against Valencia a hat trick in the final game of the season. So, they, so they weren't you know operating at the high level that they were certainly under Guardiola when he was manager a few years later. But this was still a Barcelona team that had been in the you know, that had played Man United in the Champions League and drawn twice with them 3-3 the two seasons before. This the United team that obviously went on to win it. And you know, this was this was this was a Liverpool team with virtually no European experience at all. We hadn't been in Europe the previous campaign. The season before we'd been knocked out of the UEFA Cup before Christmas by Celta Vigo. And you know, there were no, there were no qualms whatsoever. As far as I was concerned, amongst Liverpool supporters about how we played, you know, it, it, the, the difference was a couple of years later when you're still playing that way, when you should have really built and developed on it. That's when you have a problem. But when you're a young team trying to claw yourself up into into trophy contention, um, it was an entirely appropriate way to play. And let's have it right as well. You know, if that was the only way they could have played, then they wouldn't have they wouldn't have got through to the final. They still had to do and show more than that to get past them in the second leg at Anfield a fortnight later, which obviously we'll get on to, which they did. So, you know, as you say, the likes of Jose Mourinho, with far more experienced players and far more experienced squads, have has, has been hailed a tactical masterclass after similar types of performance to what Liverpool put in in the new camp that day. But it was, you know, it was, it was an unforgettable experience. I remember you know, meeting me and my mate outside the ground afterwards to go back to the coach. <clears throat> and the first thing we said to each other was, how great was Carragher? You know, Jamie Carragher in his second or third season played pretty much the whole campaign at left back, which obviously wasn't his his perfect position, but he was one of the the real standout stars of of, of this season for Liverpool. And he, he even though he, he was alongside you know a very experienced back four with Marcus Babel, Stefan Oncho, and Sammy Hipper alongside him, he was by no means the junior partner in any of that. And he, you know he he kind of set the tone really for a real resilient, resolute, defensive showing that you know, we had a couple of breakaways just to kind of sow a little bit of a seed of doubt in Barcelona minds as the match went on. And we you know, we flew about thinking, well, 
you'd, you'd like an away goal, you know, you, you'd always, you know, you'd prefer 1-1 to 0-0. And there was always that, that the, the feeling that, you know, if Barcelona scored at Anfield, we would need two. But <clears throat> it, it continued the momentum that really had been building and building since before Christmas, you know, not just in Europe, but obviously in the domestic cups as well. Liverpool had already secured the League Cup. And it just, it set the tone for what, what promised to be a really, really exciting month with big games left, right and centre. And obviously, three days away, uh, an FA Cup semi-final. I was going to say, obviously, nowadays we see sort of the, the Champions League and UEFA Cup as it was then, Europa League now, sort of uh, knockout stage games at, at the back end of it, quarterfinals and, and semi-finals, sort of played within a week of each other. Whereas this, as you said, there was two weeks until the return game. And in that time, four matches to fit in. And from Barcelona to Birmingham, off to the FA Cup semi-final to take on Wickham Wanderers and perhaps understandably somewhat of a, a slow sluggish start for Liverpool goalless at half time with Wickham Wanderers who Liverpool of course were much the, the favoured side and I, I was going to say you, you mentioned there about Jamie Carragher and in the game against Wickham Stephen Gerrard he'd been involved in all the big games he was benched and given a bit of a rest for this one but just six minutes into the second half Julio goes no we need you on the pitch gets him on and even if you sort of bring it now to the modern context of how this season has kind of slipped away. Only a couple of weeks ago, we saw Trent Alexander-Arnold step up in the last minute against Villa and curl one in and, and sort of score. How important do you think it is for Liverpool that even the global institution they've become, that they always kind of have that scouse link within the side of really knowing what it means to have to get over the line and that determination and I suppose that character that comes within and, and feeds into the squad, that these are the guys who ensure that Liverpool don't fall short and do get over the line. I think it's more important than ever now, Guy. You know, it is a global game. Obviously, there's been an awful lot written and said in <clears throat> recent days and weeks about <clears throat> the nature of modern football and where it's going. <clears throat> is it being taken away from the fans and taken away from the communities from which these clubs arrived? And I think in a perfect world, you, you, would, you would always want a few local lads in there that would, that would know the score. I mean, I don't necessarily think it's, it's essential to success. You know, what one of my favourite childhood memories is Liverpool winning the double in 1986. And, you know, the team that beat Everton in the cup final, there was only one Englishman in the team. And that was Mark Lawrence, who was born in Preston, but, uh, born in Preston, but actually played for the Republic of Ireland. So it, it's not it's not essential to be successful, but it's nice to have. And I think particularly now when there's a lot said about identity and feeling that it's your club and, you know, we, you know, we, we wait to see what the impact of this flawed and despised Super League project, how that will change the face of the game. I think we're all hoping that it will act as a, a watershed because the trends that kind of set this thing in motion really have been in place for a long time, you know, probably even before this trouble year 20 years ago. But cer certainly at this time, I think this is one of the most exciting fa facets of this treble year is that, you know, Gerard Hula was Liverpool's first foreign manager. But... Um, you know, there was a, a there was a core of young English, you know, mostly Merseyside-born players in the. You know, we'd love Steve McManaman, but Gerard was coming through. Was obviously going to go on. Well, you could already tell he was going to go on to become one of the greatest players in Liverpool history. Jamie Carragher, Danny Murphy, Michael Owen, um, blended with you know some outstanding foreign talent, the likes of Marcus Babel and Sammy Hippier, um, Yari Littman, and obviously it comes to the squad, you know, Christian Ziga. So it was something Julio often talks about, you know, finding that kind of perfect blend 
And I think during this period of time, he got it spot on. And it's one of the kind of the sadnesses, really, when you look back at Hule's reign in his era, he was getting it so right. You know, but by this stage, he'd been in, he'd been in, you know, sole charge less than two years. Obviously, later in this year of 2001, he took ill. And he was never quite the same again. And there's always that wonder that if he hadn't taken him, if he hadn't taken ill when he did, who knows how it would have developed. But uh, certainly, um, but this, it was a very rainy day in Birmingham, I seem to remember. It was almost kind of like a role reversal of, of what had happened you know, four days before. Not, not that Liverpool were the same scale of underdogs going into the game against Barcelona, but Barcelona were favourites, you know. And all of a sudden, Liverpool were going to the semi-final against third-tier Wickham Wanderers, who'd knocked out Leicester in the previous round. Kind of on a hiding to nothing, you know. You're absolutely expected to win a, a semi-final like that, no questions asked. And if you don't, then very serious questions are asked. So it was always going to be a bit of a slog. Yeah, there was a real fixture pile-up coming, as we would see in the following week. You know, Liverpool were due to, having played at Barcelona on the Thursday, Wickham on the Sunday, they then had the long haul to Ipswich on the Tuesday night. And I think there was some I think there was some controversy over the scheduling of that game. I think Liverpool tried to get it moved. Ipswich and with George Burley as manager, they were kind of scrapping for Champions League qualifications themselves. They weren't really prepared to do us any favours. And Liverpool had to kind of stick it out. So... You know, I think Hooley kind of picked his team for, you know, as you said, Gerard was left out initially for the Wickham semi. I think Gerard Hooley picked his team with an acknowledgement of the, the huge games to come. But the big players came to the fore. I think it was Gerard who put the ball in for, for Emil Heckey's head, the opener, with less than 20 minutes to go, I think. And then uh, Robbie Fowler curled in a free kick, which which seemed to kind of wrap it up. Wickham, Wickham pulled the goal back, but Liverpool held on and got it over the line. And, and part of the excitement as well was that we knew this was going to be the first FA Cup final to be played at Cardiff, at the Millennium Stadium. Wembley had now been was now in the process of being redeveloped. Liverpool fans has already had a taste of it the previous February in the League Cup final. So again, there was this sense of of newness, of excitement, of for a lot of fans, a chance to go back to Cardiff. For me, a chance to go to Cardiff for the first time because I couldn't get a ticket for for the Birmingham final. And um, it was uh, yeah, everything was starting to build quickly, but there was very little time to celebrate it, certainly for the players, probably, because within 48 hours, um, they had a tough game against Ipswich, who had already won at Anfield in the league uh, in December. Marcus Stewart, former Bristol Rovers striker, was having a real, you know, a, a real great run of scoring form and was a dangerous player. And Liverpool knew that, you know, three three massive league games in between the two Barca semi-finals. The two teams, really, Liverpool were battling for for this coveted third spot and a Goodison Park derby. Yeah, it was looking at it, it was unbelievable. Three games in sort of the, well, six days. It was the, the 10th, yeah. 13th and 16th of April that the, the league games were played. And then obviously the, the Barcelona game, which was sort of 10 days after that Wickham FA Cup semi-final. So boxed off one semi-final and into the final, as you say, down at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff to take on, as it would be, Arsenal in the FA Cup final. We'll get to that, of course, in the next instalment of Julier's treble winners. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The next three league games, we'll do the first two together. And looking Mm. at the picture, the league table, as it stood ahead of the game with Ipswich, Liverpool had... Two games in hand on Ipswich, who was sitting fourth. Of course, it was third, though, that Liverpool needed to get into to get into the Champions League places. And they had three games in hand on Leeds United, but there was only a four-point gap. Now, as you sort of referred to earlier, these were not just any games that Liverpool needed to get through 
before getting sort of back on track with the, the league scheduling. It was a case of perhaps the two biggest rivals they had for mm. finishing third. They had Ipswich away and Leeds United at home. And in the end, from the two games, only ended up coming away with a point, Dan. That's right. I mean, I think in the, you know, the, the, there was a 1-1 draw at Ipswich on the Tuesday. I mean, you know, these matches, were people talk about fixture congestion now. I mean, imagine what Jurgen Klopp would have had to say. His head would have been falling off left, right and centre. You know, Barcelona Thursday, Witham Sunday, Ipswich Tuesday, and and then Leeds Good Friday, Abbott and Easter Monday, followed by Barcelona the following Thursday. And I think there was a feeling that, obviously, you want to win as many games as as, the, as you can. Liverpool drew 1-1 in Ipswich. Emir Hasky scored just after half-time and Alan Armstrong equalised 13 minutes from time for the Tractor Boys. And I, I remember thinking afterwards, a, a draw really is not that bad a result. You know, I think it's a general rule of thumb. If, if you're drawing your home games and drawing your away games and winning your home games, you're never going to be too far away. But there was very much a feeling that you know, Liverpool would need to beat Leeds at Anfield on Good Friday. Uh, remember, obviously, Liverpool had lost a dramatic game at Ellen Road early in the season, 4-3, when Mark Viduka had, had banged those four goals in in a match that Liverpool had, 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 led, had led in twice. <clears throat> and there was a bit of you know, the, the, the context going into the game as well, which would prove to be particularly pertinent during it, was that there was this, uh, there was this court case involving Jonathan Woodgate and Lee Bowyer regarding an incident that had happened in Leeds City Centre. And I think I'm right in... The trial had been drawing to a close during the spring. And then I think I'm right in saying a National Sunday newspaper published an interview, I think, the Sunday before, so what I think would have been the day of the Wickham semi, that basically prejudiced the trial. And the trial was called off. And you know, the trial collapsed, basically. And Bowyer and Woodgate were free to play at Anfield on Good Friday. And, of course, Lee Bowyer ended up scoring what proves to be the winning goal. Liverpool didn't really turn up on the day, to be honest. Um, Leeds were a good side. You know, this was the Leeds side that this season got to the Champions League semi-finals you know, before being beaten by Valencia. I mean, as we know now, this really was kind of like the apex of their of their rise under David O'Leary and Peter The Ridsdale castle and, that was built on sand. The castle that was built on sand and, you know, and the financial mismanagement that ultimately would, that would come back to haunt them. Um, but yeah, but they, they were they were they were a good side full of you know a, a player you always used to come out with talking about his young players, which became a bit of a, a catchphrase from from mocking fans at the time. But they they, they came to Anfield and retook the games. Liverpool scored two goals in the first half through Rio Ferdinand and 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 Boya. Liverpool made a decent fist of it in the second half, pulled the goal back through Steven Gerrard, and then Gerrard was sent off very rather harshly for a second, two yellows. The second which was he'd be. I seem to remember it was for a foul on David Batty, and even Batty was kind of saying to the referee, "Come on, that's not really a foul." But it felt it felt like a costly defeat. It felt like a damaging defeat, particularly as you say, having now only taken one point from six from these two potentially pivotal games against Liverpool's main rivals, really for that third spot. And it meant that going into the, the Easter Monday the Easter Monday derby at Goodison, I think everybody knew there was absolutely no margin for error. Now Liverpool would would need to win pretty much every game until the end of the season. And remarkably, Guy, they did. You know, there, there was, after the Leeds match, I checked this just before, after the Leeds match, there were 10 matches to go, in, you know, including the Cups. And they won nine, drew one. The only match they didn't win was a, a draw against Chelsea at Anfield <clears throat> the, the week before the FA Cup final. So it was it was a watershed moment in the season. But it, I, I remember walking nearly all the way home from, you know, transport's always lousy on 
bank holidays anyway. And I remember walking pretty much all the way home from from Anfield on Good Friday, feeling a bit glum, thinking, well, it's going to be tough to finish third. Obviously, knowing that you know, we've still got a great chance in Europe, we, we're in the cup final. But um, in the back of my mind, maybe it was, it was a tough match against Liverpool, a tough match against Leeds, but Liverpool didn't throw the towel in that day. Events conspired against them slightly. And you just kind of hope, well, what better matches, to, what better places to try and turn things around to get back on track than at Goodison? And it proved to be, you know, when I'm old and grey, or should I say older and greyer, this will be one of the match, one of the matches out of the hundreds I've been privileged to attend in my football-going career that will be absolutely treasured because it just had everything, absolutely everything. Well, it's one of those, isn't it? As you, as you were sort of saying, the, the immediacy of the the aftermath of the, the Leeds game that. Liverpool were now all the way sort of down in sixth. Even Chelsea had sort of mm. leapfrogged them in the meantime. That sort of four-point gap with three games in hand, which certainly looked advantageous for Liverpool, now was six games off the pace with two games in hand. So there wasn't margin for error, albeit Liverpool did have a better goal difference. But as you said, there was traffic to get through as well as just sort of the, the points to claw back. And Going into that derby, Everton, it was during a, a period for them where every season mm. it sort of seemed to be a battle mm. against relegation. And albeit by the, the stage of this game, it looked as though they were certainly going to be safe for another season in the Premier League. I think, was this the year of Kevin Campbell's rescue mission or was that a couple of seasons no, that, before? No, that, that, that was a couple of years before. Campbell was yeah. still around. They were, they, were, they were probably going to be safe, but they weren't completely out of danger. And obviously that meant that they would be scrapping and battling for everything as they always would against Liverpool, obviously, you know, partly to save them skins, also as well, to try and obviously rain on our parade and, and, and scotch our hopes. And it you know, it, it was it was it was the last dart the last my first Goodison Derby was about ten years before one one draw when Nicky Tanner scored about nineteen ninety one. This was actually the last Goodison Derby I watched from the home sections. Every I, 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 apart from because of COVID, I've never missed a derby since then. But um, ever since then, I've been able to get ticket in the way end. For this one, I was in the, I was in the upper Bullens, which is where the away fans ordinarily are, ordinarily are now, but right towards the Gladys Street end. And it was a a febrile atmosphere. I mean, you know, it wouldn't I wouldn't say too much about it, but the match was played on the sixteenth of April. Uh, it was a bank holiday. The game didn't kick off until five thirty. There was a minute silence for um, for the the anniversary of the Hillsborough, which was the day before which unfortunately, unfortunately wasn't respected by everybody in the ground. And that kind of ramped things up a little bit as well. And then the game got off to an electric start. Um, Everton, Liverpool scored after four minutes, but it only it came about after there was a, a very, very big handball shout against Jamie Carragher, who was jumping for, a, um, jumping for a, a high ball in the box with Duncan Ferguson. It did appear to strike his arm. I've noticed whenever they show it on the Premier League goals, they actually slow that bit down and make it very, very clear that it could have been. The ball was cleared. Didi Haman put a, a clever ball over the top and Emil Heskey, who was having the, the season of his life for Liverpool, really raced through and, and rattled home the opening for the Gladys Street end. Not like, and, by the way, just before just before you go further, it's not like sort of Everton fans to stick on maybe a, a Jamie Carragher penalty that could have been at Goodison. No, but anyway, we continue. No. Or <laughs> <laughs> for them to kind of go on about a penalty or an incident that should have happened years and years ago. Clive Thomas, Alan Robinson, we could be here all day. But um, so the, the, you know, the dream start, but you knew there was a long way to go, <coughs> and you know, and inevitably Liverpool 
pumped up with adrenaline for the occasion as well, had to be feeling tired. And it's not just the, the physical tiredness of all these games in a short period of time, but the mental fatigue of constantly getting yourself up for these massive games. And Everton didn't give up. They had a couple of chances. I remember Scott Gemmell missing a header that he probably should have, should have scored after Festival missed a cross in the first half. And then as the first half was drawing to a close, um, Liverpool hadn't really capitalised on the early advantage that Heskey's goal should have given them. And Duncan Ferguson rattled home an equaliser at the park end, took his top off to reveal his Everton tattoo to the to the to the way lads in the in the Bullens Road, and one one you know per- perfect for the TV audience that were you know were really getting a, a bank holiday Monday evening treat, <clears throat> and it was kind of back to square one. The second half started and Liverpool managed to get themselves back in front with a terrific counter attack goal. Um, you know what we talk about you know the the lightning breaks of Klopp's team, but you know this. This this goal would have not been out of place had it been Mohamed Salah, um, Sadio Mane, or any of them being involved. Great long range ball from Didi Haman into space for Robbie Fowler from Everton. Free kicker broken down, and Marcus Babel, you know the, the right back, who even though he was a, a top player, top international, scored some big goals in this season. Generally, he kind of felt he was a threat from set pieces, and in open play, he came charging forward. And as Fowler's ball across the box was only kind of half cleared from the heel of David Unsworth, I think, and he rammed it into the back of the net uh, to put Liverpool back in front. And this really seemed like the time of the game when Liverpool really could and should have put it to bed. A few minutes later, <clears throat> Liverpool received a penalty. Now, when I said the game had everything, what I mean by that is it, it also had one of the all-time horrific refereeing performances from Stockton on Tees' Jeff Winter. Um, it, I think there were eleven or twelve bookings, a red card. Yeah, I was just going to say no. There was of the twenty-five players on the pitch, eleven yeah. received cards, and Igor Biscan yeah. obviously received this two. This got two yellows. There were two penalties given that, that shouldn't have been. Probably a couple of penalties that should have been that weren't. Um, he, it was a perform, particularly for the Everton penalty, the, the equaliser. The way the cameras on it when you know, some of the players go over to. to he, he, he was very much one of these showmen referees yeah. that knew he was on telly and loved to make a bit of a kind of drama and, and a persona from it, um, which at the time massively wound me up. You know, it's probably less so now. But yeah, a couple of minutes after going in front, Fowler won a penalty, which he himself then took at the park end and hit the post that came out again. And that just kind of <clears throat> gave Everton a little bit of a glimmer of hope. Um, you know, they, 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 they were still kind of in the game. Uh, Biscan then got his second yellow for a very, a little bit of a rash lunge in on David Unsworth, but it was, it was, it was, it, it was very much in keeping, unfortunately, with Winter's performance. And then, with about, <clears throat> I think, less than ten minutes to go, Everton got an unbelievably soft penalty at the, at the Gladys Street end. Throwing comes in. There's a bit of jostling. Sammy Hippier might have his arm on Duncan Ferguson's shoulder. But I don't think anyone even appealed for it, and Winter just blew and blew to the spot. David Unsworth rattled in the penalty kick, 2-2 with seven or eight minutes to go. Liverpool down to 10 men. And you're suddenly thinking now, well, you'd probably take a point. You know, under the circumstances, you, 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 you're envisaging the nightmare scenario where Everton nick it at the end. And then that really is top, you know, that really is top three and Champions League hopes out the window. But, you know, if, if ever maybe a, you know, a spell of the game summed up, the kind of resilience and the determination and the never say die attitude of this Julia team. It, it's this it's this last few minutes and stoppage time at Goodison when 
<clears throat> I think even the most virulent, even the most diehard Reds would have been thinking, let's just get out of this somehow intact. But Liverpool actually were the ones pushing to win it more than Everton were. Where, where the nerves kicked, nerves kicked in for the Blues, I don't know. Um, a few minutes before time, Liverpool got a free kick midway through the Everton half. Gary McAllister floated one in and Sammy Hippie got a great head on it and Paul Gerrard in goal made a, made a top save, pushing it wide. The game went into stoppage time and Gregory Vignal, who will you know, be forever in Liverpool folklore because of this now, went on a kind of mazy run from his own half, was, was fouled not far past halfway. Gary McAllister robbed a few extra yards. The numbers are burned into every Liverpool fan of that era's brains. It was 44 yards out when it, the free kick was placed. And with everybody, including me in, in that, that side of the pitch, but in the far Gladys Street corner, expecting him again to kind of float it into the match ranks and the big centre-halves. He spotted the Everton goalkeeper just slightly nudging away from his near post and just whipped this kind of, like, like one of those kind of bouncing bombs yeah. in, the, in, in the Second World War. Just this low skidding free kick that seemed to pick up pace off the turf and just deceived him and just whizzed in at the near post. And I just remember grabbing my mates by his collar and just shrieking, it's in! And you know, there were a few, there were a few reds round us. I mean, it did. You, know, you can imagine it did get quite lively in the stands and all around the ground and in the streets of Goodison. After that, it had been quite a match, but just the absolute elation. And you know, it was four minutes, forty-four yards, and four minutes into stoppage time. The celebrations on the pitch were fantastic. McAllister careers away towards the dugouts on the main stand side. Carrigan wild-eyed running after him. Gerard Hule looks like his eyes are going to pop out of his head. It was it was just an extraordinary moment that just infused everybody to do with the club, the players and the supporters, with immense belief that wow, against all the odds, they've managed to find a way to win this derby match completely. A derby double over Everton for the first time in quite a few years, probably. Well, it was the first, it, it was the first win at Goodison in over ten years as well. That was the other thing. Liverpool hadn't won at Goodison yeah. for ages. Yeah, we'd had a terrible record. We hadn't won a derby in five in anywhere for most of the previous decade, but I hadn't won a good at all for a long, long time. And it was enormous. Remember, you know, going walking back through Stanley Park and having a, having a few beers late into the night and as well from the you know the tradition for Goodison Derby's in, in our own pubs back by Anfield. And talk began to turn towards the following Thursday night and the second leg against Barcelona. And after the kind of as I said before on the Friday, those kind of doubts that had started to creep in, we couldn't beat Ipswich, we'd lost the leads. All of a sudden People were thinking, well, this team's shown again that they've got some real, some real steel to them, some real determination to, you know, to, to get their rewards for this amazing season and bring on Barcelona. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Talk of Barcelona and sort of that ingenuity and initiative shown by Gary McAllister. I suppose that kind of level of initiative in that way hasn't been shown sort of since up until Trent's corner taken quickly, if you know what I mean. It was very much yeah. one of those catch them off guard. Trent's corner taken quickly. The only one I would compare it to, again, a, a big European goal, 2009, 4-4 Champions League quarterfinal, second leg, ultimately a defeat at Stamford Bridge, but it was Liverpool were magnificent that night. It was the night before the 20th Hilton anniversary. I remember walking out the ground that like feeling, even though disappointed we'd lost 10 foot tall, and Fabio Aurelio, Open Liverpool had lost the first leg three one yeah. at Anfield to one of probably one of the best performances I've ever seen by an away team at Anfield. Chelsea were unreal that night. Liverpool were lucky to only lose three one, 
And but at the second leg, Aurelio scored a, other side of the pitch, but a free kick very wide out, and he deceived again. A, well, I had fair to say Peter Cech was a, a much better goalkeeper than Paul Gerrard. Mm. Absolutely deceived him at the near post. Very very similar. But yeah, that kind of initiative, um, you know, always is always very very impressive. And you know, people talk about how important set pieces are, and they are, but you don't see ones like that too often. But McAllister's takes the biscuit because it was the winner, because it was at Goodison, because even now, 20 years on, you only have to mention the name to Gary McAllister to some Evertonians and you can see them just die a little bit, in, sink a little bit inside. And it, you know, by the same time, I mentioned it to any Liverpool supporter and their eyes light up. It was an absolutely I- iconic moment. And incredible. It, 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 I think I'm right in saying that was only his second goal for Liverpool. He scored, he scored a home to Coventry, his, old, his former club Coventry, much earlier in the season. But all of a sudden, this actually launched him on an incredible scoring run that would continue into the following month. That you know, that put Liverpool to the to the cusp of the treble. Yeah, as you say, it was. Uh, well, it was a, a brilliant time for him, and as you say, he came up with the the set piece against Everton, and then he came up with the set piece against Barcelona. Actually, looking at it, as you say, he scored one goal before that. He then scored in each mm. of the next five games. So. Yeah, yeah, what, what a run! What a run match. it was, and of course, came up with the decisive goal to send Liverpool to Dortmund for the UEFA Cup final. Yeah, I mean, and that was another very, very special night. I mean, I, I would say at the time that was probably the greatest night I'd ever had at Anfield. I'd been to one European semi-final before, 1985 against Panathinaikos, but the ground was ten thousand short of capacity. It was the first leg. Um, this was Barcelona. You know, this was really the second time Barcelona had ever played at Anfield. They'd also played in the UEFA Cup semi-finals in 1976 when Liverpool had drawn 1-1 after winning in the new Camp to go on to what would be their second triumph. But obviously this was this was the momentum that had been building all season that had followed on from Goodison on the Monday night. Anfield was absolutely jumping. I remember um, you know, I qualified for a ticket because I'd been to every home leg. I'd been to every home leg in the UEFA Cup. But I seem to remember queuing for about four hours to get to, you know, to, to to get a precious ticket for that, the second leg at Anfield, the queues were right right way around the ground. But you didn't mind queuing because after you know, only two years before Liverpool had been in the absolute doldrums, Man United were winning the treble. You kind of wonder, will we ever be competitive again? It felt like they were operating a different stratosphere to us. And even though, all right, they won the they won the Premier League by a distance this season, I think I'm right in saying Liverpool won team of the, Liverpool quite won quite a few team of the year awards this year. And obviously, we'd beaten United twice in the league. And you just felt, if we're not back, we're on the way back. So the atmosphere was phenomenal in the ground. Probably, as I said before, you know, 0-0 is a good result, but it's still fraught with a certain sense of danger. And, you know, it became clear in the first few minutes that Barcelona, you know, had some very, very dangerous players. Probably the closest they came the whole night was Rivaldo in the first 10 minutes hit this absolute like tracer bullet of a shot for about 45 yards that Sander Vestival got the merest of fingertips to, but it was only when you saw the replay, and obviously didn't see it until much later, watching it back on TV, that his fingertip was absolutely crucial in diverting it just over the bar, because otherwise it might have gone in. So it was a very tight game. You know, Liverpool were a little bit more expansive than they'd been in the new camp, but it was a semi-final, a tight game, but you know, Barcelona certainly weren't going to make it easy for us. And the crucial moment came shortly before half-time with a corner kick at, at the, the Anfield Road end, which is close to where I was sitting in the lower Kemlin towards the Anfield Road end. And Patrick Cliver inexplicably 
raised a hand as he was leaping for the ball. The ball brushed it. Thankfully, the referee managed to spot it long before VAR, of course. And uh, penalty given. Gary McAllister, nerves of steel, up against an 18-year-old Pepe Reina, who obviously would, you know, five years later would become Liverpool's number one. And he nervously side-footed the ball high into the top of the net. Uh, Liverpool were in front. Second half was a bit nervy. I, do, I remember one moment when Clivert was running through, chasing an overhit pass, and Vesterveld um, missed his kick completely and kind of half-sliced it. And thankfully, it went wide with Clivert unable to kind of catch up with it to put in, put it into what would have been an empty net. And if, if Barcelona had got an away goal, whether Liverpool could have had it in them to get a second to get them through to Dortmund, I don't know. But after you know, a nerve-shredding last few minutes, the whistle blew, Anfield erupted. Liverpool's first final, first European final since, since um, 1985, 16 years. And it just meant the world to people. You know, three finals in one season. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, amazing celebrations. I remember we went into town and had a great night. Um, and then, you know, the attention turned towards the final and, well, how are you going to get a ticket? How are you going to go? I rapidly became, I became clear I wouldn't be able to go because it was my final year at university. And I think I'd already sussed that the final was the day of, I had two final exams, the day of the final and the day after. But so long as Liverpool were there, that was all that mattered. And as we'll get on to in the final instalment of this, I did at least manage to get a ticket to the FA Cup final, which became a very, very special memory. But there was no respite for Liverpool. Three days later, there was another game, another big game against Tottenham. And again, Liverpool didn't have it all their own way, but dug in and got a vital victory. Yeah, and they did so also in the, the final game of the month as well, away at Coventry City. That's two right. goals in the final seven minutes, Sammy Huppier and Gary McAllister. Again, that goal machine popping up for Liverpool. And it, it kind of meant then by the end of the month then that Liverpool were back up to fifth. They still had a game in hand on Leeds United and were three points behind them. They were also three points behind Ipswich, but had two games in hand on the Tractor Boys. The things were shaping up very nicely for Liverpool ahead of a trip to Bradford, Newcastle and Chelsea to come to Anfield before those two cup semi-finals and, of course, the season finishing at the Valley. We'll get on to all of that in the next instalment of Julier's treble winners, but that's all it for April's edition. I've been Guy Clark, Dan Kay alongside me. Thanks for your time and your company here on Blood Red. It's bye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.